Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's October the 26th, the morning of October the 26th, 2021. And as always, I'm talking to you from the great city of San Francisco uh, in the northern part of the great state of California. Um, I was looking up California on the internet today. Of course, I guess California sort of invented or certainly constructed the internet for better or worse. And one of the sites that came up was All Dreams Welcome in California, although, of course, other people might suggest that California is the place people come to for their dreams to die. Um, certainly, the issue of geography and literature has been um, a strong one on the show recently. Uh, last week, I, I talked to brilliant writer W. Ralph Eubanks about his new book about the literary history of Mississippi. And thinking about that, I thought about California and its literary history. The middle of California, perhaps, is the area between San Francisco and Los Angeles on the coast. Uh, and for those watching, you can see the little red dot on our screen somewhere between San Francisco and Los Angeles is uh, the town uh, of, of Salinas um, in the middle of California. And of course, Salinas was the small town where um, John Steinbeck, the winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature and perhaps California's greatest writer, was born and, and wrote a lot about the subject. Um, I'm thrilled today to have the biographer of John Steinbeck, um, William uh, Souder on the show. He has a, a book out that came out last year, won lots of prizes, now out in paperback, Mad at the World, The Life of John Steinbeck. Uh, and Bill is joining us from uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, where he lives, to talk about this. Uh, Bill, uh, thank you so much for coming on to the show, and congratulations on a wonderful biography of, of, of Steinbeck. Um, thanks for thanks for having me. It's nice to be here. Uh, Bill, geography is destiny. We talk a lot about geography on this show. Um, as I said, we talked about the literary history of Minnesota. How quintessentially Californian do you think John Steinbeck is? Or perhaps, as I was reading the book, he's so hard to categorize and California is so hard to categorize. Maybe there's something sort of oddly Californian about Steinbeck. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, he's certainly among the most Californian of, uh, of writers. Uh, growing up in Salinas in the early 1900s, uh, living later over on the Monterey Peninsula in Monterey itself and in Pacific Grove, uh, Steinbeck was really kind of grounded in this area. And, and uh, a lot of his, uh, his early books, his early works were, of course, uh, set in those areas, and arguably his greatest book, The Grapes of Wrath, which was about the um, migration into California during the Dust Bowl and the Great Depression from the middle part of the country, 
um, placed him, I think, forever in that kind of uh, in that kind of setting. But more importantly, California really made him who he was. Uh, Salinas is the you know it's the uh, county seat of Monterey County, but it's also really kind of the capital of the Salinas Valley, which is one of the most fertile agricultural valleys anywhere in the world, the salad bowl of the world, if you will. And um, uh, I think this influenced Steinbeck at a very early age, and, and uh, we never really get away from the place that we are from. We are always part of it, and it is always part of us. I think uniquely in John Steinbeck's case, because he was so outside the mainstream of American literature as it was developing in the 1920s and 1930s, that he um, he was in kind of a category of his own. And I think he kind he of came from and, and that's what struck me about the book. He came from nowhere. He, he didn't he, he, he wasn't part of any kind of literary tradition. He didn't think of himself as any part of literary tradition. He invented himself, his his circle, which he then immortalized in his literature. And in that sense, it's it's so Californian, this ability to create and recreate itself without any essential foundation. So true. And, uh, you know, he didn't go to Paris. He was too young by about a year to make it to the First World War. Um, you know, living and working in Europe and having experienced the war was such a central part of the experience and the formative um, kind of soup that people like Fitzgerald and Hemingway and Dos Passos uh, came out of, and he was just off by himself, quite literally on the far west coast, away from New York, away from Paris, away from the great events of the day. And as you say, quite rightly, uh, his, he chose for his subjects people that he knew and that he knew about who uh, lived in that part of the place, quite unlike what was being written about elsewhere. And yet you do try to summarize him. You have to as a biographer. You can't just write chapters on his life and not come to any conceptual conclusions. Um, and the one thing you come to at the end of the, world, uh, at the, end of the book, which explains that the title, Mad at the World, is you suggest, I think you take a, a quote from someone else, that uh, John Steinbeck is America's angriest writer. It's a particularly in, intriguing um, conclusion for me, Bill, because we've been talking a lot about rage on the show recently. We had Maisha Cherry, for example, on uh, an African-American uh, historian and, and social theorist who argues that uh, African-Americans need to embrace anger as a tool for defeating um, racism. We've had some other people on arguing that anger is not an effective vehicle. Right. What is it about Steinbeck that made him so angry? Why is this, in your view, at least in terms of the title of the book, uh, Mad at the World, why is this his defining quality, both as a person and as a writer? Well, consider who he wrote about. He wrote about uh, this ethnic subgroup in, the, in Monterey called the Paisanos. These were mixed-race people descended from the Spanish and from indigenous peoples who live this um, kind of off the grid existence, um, no visible means of support. Uh, he later wrote about the, uh, the layabouts on Cannery Row. Again, people, um, uh, kind of the dregs, if you will, of society, people we would walk past on the sidewalk without with either trying to avoid them or to ignore them. Uh, he wrote about these, uh, these 
deeply impoverished and exploited agricultural workers who migrated into California uh, during the Dust Bowl. People who were dispossessed, people who had no means and no power, and he considered them and wrote about them as if they were human beings. And it's a radical, if you think about it, it's a radical idea. The, the notion that we're all human beings and that we are not in any fundamental way different from one another, uh, other than uh, you know the outward markings of our station in life, our success as it's measured in material accomplishments. Uh, and that was Steinbeck's great talent, but it was also the thing that drove his anger. Uh, because obviously society isn't organized that way. It's not organized as an equal uh, opportunity proposition for everyone. And I think that animated really all of his work, but but quite a bit of his best work. And if I could, I'll just, I, I just I want to just paraphrase one quote from Cannery Row, which is which is a lighthearted uh, comedic book. But again, it's it's one in which Steinbeck states what is really sort of his central thesis. And he's had the character Doc, who is based on, Steinbeck's friend, the marine biologist Ed Ricketts, is talking, and he said, Doc says, what, what is it that, why is it that people who are innocent, guileless, uh, without, without money, without ambition, who are ungreedy, um, why is it that these people who have the traits that we most admire in people have nothing? and have no chance of success in the usual meaning of that word. Whereas the people who do succeed uh, possess qualities of greed and, and, and you know blind ambition and ruthlessness, meanness and inability to empathize or care for other people. Those are the traits that we despise and yet they are the markers of success. And I think Steinbeck was always looking at this uh, grotesque imbalance between what makes a good person and what makes a successful person. Yeah, it's, um, I, I had, uh, we had the, uh, the, the writer Sebastian Junger on the show. Oh yeah. Last week, who seems to me to be a kind of intellectual descendant in some ways of Steinbeck. And I began the show with Junger talking about Rousseau and of course his famous observation in the social contract that man is born free and everywhere he is in chains. This, <laughs> naturalist, anti-social contract, anti-Lockean take on mankind. I think there's a strong Rousseauan element in um, in Steinbeck, that kind of romanticism, this attempt to go back before the existence of society and idealize natural man. Would, would you agree with that? I would. And, and one of Steinbeck's more intriguing critics, uh, Edmund Wilson, would have agreed with that as well. Wilson saw... Uh, in nature and uh, and the animations of the natural world in Steinbeck's work um, profoundly so, and so yeah, I think that's absolutely true. You know, Steinbeck was a he was a collector of characters, a collector of people, voices, accents. He was a wonderful. Mimic. And he was a pickpocket as well, wasn't he, Bill? I mean, he stole other people's <laughs> ideas. Well, he didn't steal other people's <laughs> ideas. He stole the. No, he there's a sort of a Dylan-esque quality as well to, to, to uh, Bob Dylan uh, to, yeah. to Steinbeck. Yeah, you know, he, he always had his eyes open and his ear to the ground in any setting, whether it was at one of these rowdy parties that he and his bohemian friends were having in, in Monterey in the early 1930s or in these little diners and cafes up and down the coast where he would stop and grab a hamburger and listen to the man behind the grill talk or listen to a couple in a booth 
having an argument and he 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 would absorb these these sounds and these images and he seemed to be have this kind of sixth sense for what made someone tick by listening to how they spoke and and what their concerns were and and uh, uh and, and that you know penetrates into all of his words it's very authentic and uh, in no way contrived, in no way invented. You're, you're quite right. A couple of his books, he, he was really literally given the ideas for by other people who, for the most part, happily uh, did so. Uh, but uh, yeah, he's a, he's, um, he's a reporter uh, with, a, with a novelist's uh, flair. Yeah, and there's, there's always that strong Hemingway-esque quality, although, as you say, he wasn't as contrived and certainly wasn't as European as, as Hemingway. Bill, um, tomorrow got the pleasure of having Pamela Paul, the editor of the New York Times book um, book review on the show. She has a new book out, 100 Things We've Lost to the Internet. <laughs> and she writes, um, it's a very good book, and she writes a lot about the, what we've lost to the internet is literature, the boy who would love his books, the the the, the bibliophile quality of, of culture, which has disappeared. While I was reading Paul's book, I was thinking of your book and Steinbeck. On the one hand, Steinbeck would have been horrified with the internet, with its surveillance because of his own obsession with privacy. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, it seems to me that there's a quality of the internet where everyone's angry all the time that actually Steinbeck would have fitted in quite naturally with and particularly given the way in which the internet was invented essentially or certainly nurtured not very far from where um where Steinbeck was born and in right. fact um uh he you know his first house is in uh, I, I was really struck with this in in Los Gatos uh which has now become an incredibly expensive suburb of Silicon Valley. What do you think Steinbeck would have made of the internet? Would he have felt totally at home or or totally <laughs> foreign to it? Um, you know, Steinbeck also went to Stanford, which is sort of the right. uh, the intellectual hub of uh, of high tech in that part of the world. Um, you know, this kind of question often gets asked. I, I wrote a biography of Rachel Carson, and people would often ask me what Rachel Carson would make of the climate change debate or something like that. And it's, it's very, very difficult, I think. And I don't mean to dodge the question, but you know, people tend to be embedded in the time they live in. And Steinbeck was born at the, um, at the tail end, just at the tail end of the Victorian age. He was born in 1902. And he dies um, about eight months before Neil Armstrong walks on the moon. So that's a life that, you know, went, I mean, he was born before uh, Wilbur and Orville Wright had flown an airplane. And uh, by the time he dies, you know, we're, we're in space. And so uh, that's vast, vast distance. And I don't think he accommodated it particularly comfortably. He was not a very modern guy, even late in life. Um, I think that his uh, sensibilities were shaped and defined and limited by uh, the world that he grew up in. So uh, again, not to dodge the question, I have no idea what he would make of the internet. He was um, he was a, a progressive guy. I, I think if he lived in this time, he would be, you know, moving in the same current that we we all are. I mean, I'm born in 1949. I you know I, I got to the internet late in life, or the internet got to me late in life. But it, it's now central to it's central to my daily life. It's central to my work. The computer and the internet have made the kind of work I do manifestly um, more efficient to do. 
uh, you know, people who wrote, there was a biography of John Steinbeck written back in the 1980s that I admire very much. And the writer, Jack Benson, of course, had to conduct all of his work by, by letters and by long distance telephone calls that he had to pay for. I mean, things we can't even conceive of today. And, and I have great admiration for that work, but my goodness, uh, what an advantage to, to have the internet. I think Steinbeck would have seen it the way that we all do, which is, um, which is this wonderful, wonderful um, uh, gathering place, uh, communications device, research device that like all of human endeavor is filled with nooks and crannies that are evil and, and um, spoiling for a fight and uh, counterproductive and uh, counter to humanity's best interests. It's, it's, not a, it's not a one thing. The internet is not all good or all bad. It is the internet and it has both. I'm also struck with, um, with, with Steinbeck's romanticize. I, I, I wasn't, I mean, I knew the big books, the, Obviously, Tortilla Flat, um, the East of Eden, obviously, uh, Grapes of Wrath. But I didn't know of his sort of lifelong romance with the Middle Ages, with the medieval mm. legends, with King mm. Arthur and his attempt to translate um, Mallory at one point. Yeah. What was it do you think about the Middle Ages that so transfixed them. It was such a romantic ideal, especially for a Californian that's supposed to be um, always on, on, on in, in the future. You know, we, we California has always imagined itself as the future. And here we have the quintessential Californian writer looking back, yeah. obsessing yeah. over the Middle Ages. Yeah, his, uh, his first book was actually about pirates. Um, not a very good book, a, sort of a juvenile work, but uh, well, the, the easy answer is that Steinbeck from an early age was fascinated with um, the Arthurian legend. Um, he had trouble learning to read and, until uh, one of his aunts gave him a, um, a children's version of the uh, Mort d'Arthur, the, the story of Camelot. And, uh, and he loved that sort of strange sounding, you know, Middle English style language. But what I think really, really got to him was that... Uh, uh, and again, this is the this is the mythologized Middle Ages. But the idea that you have very clearly defined black and white, good and evil in the world. These fearless knights who are there to uh, to stand for good and to stand for justice and to do the right thing and to live by a code, uh, as opposed to the um, the barbarians and the evil that roams the world. And so uh, Steinbeck was always um, fascinated by the um, by this contest between good and evil, not just as forces in the world, but with but as characteristics of certain kinds of people. East of Eden is about two brothers. One is good and one is evil. Um, you find this throughout all of his books. And so um, I think it was natural for him to be uh, kind of obsessed by this idea. And he also thought of himself as a kind of uh, uh, living a knight's life as a writer, that that to be a writer was to be on a quest, to be seeking a grail, and to know that you will never, ever succeed, no matter how noble and how heroic your efforts are, that you are destined to fall short. And he, he was a fatalistic guy. And, um, you know, at the end of his life, he, he, he wrote, he was having trouble. He was going to write this translation, this modernization of the Arthurian legend. He was having trouble with it. His editor hated it. His agent hated it. 
Um, he was in, living in England working on it. And he complained to them in a letter. He said, you know, I, I just can't give up on this. There's, there's an overwhelming sadness in this story somewhere, if I can only find it. And I, I think that kind of sums, that's sort of a statement of how he felt about the world and how he felt about his work. Yeah, I think he had a very, I guess, a metaphysical moment where he actually went to, you, you, you mentioned in the, in the book, he went to a Stonehenge and, mm-hmm. and saw a kind of truth. You mentioned East of Eden, um, Bill, the book. Yes. Many, especially Steinbeck fans, will be familiar with the book, but more people will be familiar with the movie by Ilya Kazan um, in Hollywood. And, and your book talks a lot about Steinbeck's very ambivalent, uneasy relationship with Hollywood, which is in some ways ironic because he's such a visual writer. Um, what is it about, what was it about Hollywood that? unnerved Steinbeck that made him so uneasy and in in some ways combative and perhaps even angry? Well, you alluded to his privacy earlier. He was obsessively uh, private. He didn't give talks or lectures or readings. He didn't go on the radio. Later on, he he didn't go on television. He just, uh, Steinbeck wanted his work to speak for for itself, and um, and and he hated the idea of public speaking. He was terrified of it. Uh, that was part of it. But mainly, he um, he was just intensely private. And I think very early on, he was suspicious of Hollywood. It seemed like um, a, a corruption of literature to turn it into a movie. Uh, it seemed exploitive. It, there seemed to be a lot of money there, which he thought would also probably. Um, uh, be something that would uh, change his life and not in a good way. Uh, but he changed his mind, you know, when he had these tremendous successes in the 1930s with uh, Mice and Men and uh, The Red Pony, uh, which is this uh, a trilogy of uh, stories about a young boy with a pony kind of modeled on his own experience as a young boy with a pony. Uh, and of course, the Grapes of Wrath, um, those were all those were all uh, turned into, in the case of, of Mice and Men, both a very successful Broadway play, uh, which won the Tony for drama, uh, beating out Our Town, Thornton Wilder's on in Our Town, Our Town that year, and, uh, and then was made into a terrific movie as well. Um, and I think after that, Steinbeck really thought of himself as working in these different media, and uh, he tried his hand at writing plays when he lived in New York later on and um, and was happy to see his uh, books turned into film. And, he never and, made the fatal error, though, of Fitzgerald and putting all his eggs in one basket and going down to Hollywood, did he? No, uh, Fitzgerald uh, did that, I think, not very successfully. William Faulkner was much more successful as a screenwriter um, uh, in Hollywood. He, he uh, wrote scripts for The Big Sleep and... and uh, uh, a number of other movies. Uh, no, Steinbeck never did that, although he did uh, sometimes offer thoughts to the screenwriters who were adapting his work, and he did work on the book for the uh, Broadway play based on Of Mice and Men. We, we, as I said, the book is uh, called Mad at the World, A Life of John Steinbeck. We've talked about his anger. It's, in my view, in terms of reading your book, a kind of pre-political anger, perhaps a quintessentially Californian politics, not really a left-right politics, although 
He was involved in the early years, particularly in terms of the Grapes of Wrath and his support for migrant workers in the Federal Emergency Relief Administration of, of Roosevelt and the, the Works Progress Administration. So I guess he's kind of a new dealer. Um, he, um, he, he was friends with LBJ towards the end of his life. I think their wives, his third wife and LBJ's wife were connected. So I guess he believed in a great society. But he wasn't really a political writer in a conventional sense. He flirted with communism. I think his first wife joined the party at some point. Right. How would you sum up, Bill, his politics? Was there something, again, quintessentially Californian, neither left nor right about it? Yeah, I think so. Probably more left than right, only because of what I said earlier about his willingness to side with uh, common people and to see everyone as fully human and and having but that you know, got, but, but 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 and began to to focus on the authentic in in both himself and in and other people is again Rousseau and it's it's certainly not traditionally leftist he never fetishized the working class as an abstraction did he oh fair no absolutely no no fair point fair point um yeah no i don't i think i don't think he was totally apolitical you know he worked with adlai stevenson on both of stevenson's uh campaigns for the presidency as you mentioned he was friendly with lbj um who he knew uh through his uh, third wife who was friends with with lady bird uh remember though that when most of his contact with lbj was centered on the issue of the Vietnam War, and Steinbeck was very hawkish about the war in the early going. Yeah, surprising. And, uh, I, I have to admit, reading the book, I was really surprised at that, and it, it was one of the reasons why his relations with one of his sons turned so sour, so sadly sour yeah, at the end of his yeah, life. Yeah. Um, I, I think that Steinbeck had a very strong patriotic streak uh, in him, and he felt that you know his, his country w- was on the right side of things, whether it was Korea or Vietnam or, you know, any other situation. So I, I think he was reflexively hawkish and, you know, he belonged to a different generation. You know, he had covered World War Two uh, and, and uh, actually got kind of shaken up uh, in Italy during World War Two. And uh, I, I just think he was coming from a different uh, a different place. Um, but I, I think you've got your finger on something that he, he was um, uh, you wouldn't categorize him easily on the political spectrum. But you know, it's it's funny because on the one hand, you're right, I think, and, and you certainly bring this out wonderfully in the book, that he was unique. He sort of came from nowhere, came out of no tradition, came out of a Salinas of all places and won the Nobel Prize for Literature and sim- similar sorts of stories to what happened in Mississippi, I guess. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, he 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 he, he he didn't age well, or in some ways, perhaps he hasn't aged well. And and you make the point, he was completely out of sync with Ferlinghetti, with the Beats. Uh, his his work aged, although perhaps now it will come back into fashion. So that so, so he's not a man, for better or worse, who can really stand outside history. I'm curious, Bill, as I said, I mean, it's a brilliant book, and congratulations, a huge amount of work. I know you spent Thank almost you. five years on the book. I'm curious why you chose Steinbeck. Yeah. Uh, your previous books, again, prize-winning books, uh, your biography of, of Ra- Rachel Carson and of um, John James Audubon are both, and I, and I use this word carefully, nature books, environment books. 
I wonder if that's the thing that joins the dots in Steinbeck, his love of nature. And perhaps if he was around today, he might find voice uh, as a supporter of AOC and the Green New Deal, because after all, his life was one of continual travel and love of the land. Well, uh, yeah, so I'm interested in, as you can tell by looking at those titles, I'm interested in history, but also in natural history, history and ecology, biology, mid-20th century history, uh, uh, writers. And so I looked for people uh, like Rachel Carson, like John Steinbeck, like John James Audubon, who embody some of those themes. Uh, because I'm interested in them. And, and several several people told me when I said I was going to do John Steinbeck, they said, well, that makes sense. You know, <laughs> he's sort of next in line for you. John Steinbeck's best friend, as I mentioned earlier, was Ed Ricketts, a marine biologist and a, an important pioneer in the field of ecology. And also a compulsive womanizer, which you remind us, a very intriguing man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, uh, he would... Uh, Mr. Ricketts would have been me too many, many times had he uh, been alive these days. But um, he, uh, but he was a brilliant scientist, and he was John Steinbeck's greatest friend. And the two of them collaborated on a scientific expedition into the Gulf of California, uh, which they turned into a, a book that they co-authored. Um, Ricketts wrote the phylogenetic category categorization of all these um, uh, invertebrate animals that they collected in the tide pools up and down. Uh, the coasts of the Gulf of California, and uh, Steinbeck wrote the narrative of the trip, which was a rather um, uh, kind of wild and fun-filled um, uh, joyride across the ocean. Uh, the book is called Sea of Cortez, and um, it is one of the pillars of modern ecology. And, and in fact, I got interested in Steinbeck when I was working on Rachel Carson because uh, she was inspired by uh, uh, a book that Ed Ricketts had written called Between Pacific Tides. And uh, in looking into that connection, uh, if you look at Ed Ricketts for very long, uh, you you can't avoid starting to look at John Steinbeck and vice versa. So uh, it was that for me, it was a natural kind of progression to Steinbeck. And, and um, as I say, uh, you know, all of his work and everything he was about are the things that interest me. Uh, Bill, you were introduced to me by, uh, literally introduced to me by Bill Steigerwald, the Pittsburgh-based journalist who wrote a wonderful book. He's been, he was on the show a couple of months ago about life underground as a black man in the Jim Crow South. Um, and, and he, and I, I didn't, she hadn't realized this from your book uh, until I read your book, but he, 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 he has a, a kind of a page in the biography because he uncovered that some of the some of the stuff that uh, Steinbeck reported on in his book about America, Travels with Charlie, were entirely made up. I wonder if that's the one thing, though, that's missing from Steinbeck, is any thought on race. Reading the book, there was nothing on it. He had no black friends. He didn't seem to have any strong feelings one way or the other about slavery or the experience of black America. Uh, Am I missing something here? Or was he just no, kind of no, different to the, the struggle and the suffering of black Americans? I know. I don't think you're missing anything. I don't know that he would have been indifferent to it. I, I, I believe Steinbeck held the same uh, ideas about racial inequities and, and imbalances that he held about. Uh, you but know, it's so central, Bill, to America. It, it is. Again, to, to, to use a horrible cliche, you know, the original sin of America. And for him to be this 
American writer who won the Nobel Prize, who was so prolific, and, and to write almost nothing about it is striking. It is. And, um, I, you know, I, I can't explain it other than um, he simply didn't, uh, during the course of his life, turn his attention in that direction. He, he could have. And one of the knocks against Steinbeck is that he did all of his best work uh, by the end of the 1930s, 1939, when the Grace of Wrath comes out. And from there, thereafter, despite some big and notable books like East of Eden and Travels with Charlie um, and Cannery Row, um, it was really a kind of a sort of steady decline. He, he, he kind of peaked early, as many writers do, and then spent the rest of his life trying to live up to um, what he'd done. Um, I don't know why he wasn't more concerned uh, with the whole issue of race in America, because it was, as you suggest, um, a much longer and more historically grounded um, issue than the Dust Bowl and the Depression. I mean, those were transitory uh, things, whereas, whereas race is our original sin and, and the thing that we live with um, uh, daily and that, that, you know, is the continues to be America's most um, uh, difficult stumbling block. I don't know why he didn't write about that other than, you know, writers. I mean, I don't know. There's probably 20 other books I might have written, but I didn't. I don't know I why. So. And I guess also to be fair, um, well, I don't know, to be fair to Steinbeck, he didn't write much about women either. And as you know, in the book, uh, East of Eden, for example, was half written by his first wife. She did all his typing and rewrote it. So certainly the issue of women's rights wasn't either central in his work. But this is a marvelous book. Um, Bill, and uh, Mad at the World, The Life of John Steinbeck, uh, deservedly winning all sorts of prizes for biography. So congratulations on the book. As I said, we are you, you are uh, in Minnesota right now. Um, we are living in odd times. It always seems to be living in odd times in America. Steinbeck would have recognized that. In addition to your, to your biography of Steinbeck, what else should people be reading? Well, I'll recommend a couple of things real quickly. Um, this is a book called The Sound of the Sea. It's by a very good friend of mine named Cynthia Barnett, and it is about mm. seashells. And it's about what seashells can tell us about the world that we live in, and particularly about climate change and the way in which the oceans upon which we are so dependent are changing. Um, I also uh, am right now reading uh, a book by John McClain, John McLean was the son of Norman McLean. Norman McLean famously wrote a book called The River Runs Through It, which was turned into a Hollywood. It's a, it's a movie about fly fishing in Montana. It starred Brad Pitt. Um, and his son, John, has written a sort of a memoir of growing up with his father in Montana. Uh, it's just terrific. And John is a, a friend and a, and a really good guy. And then the book that I am looking forward to, I don't have a copy here yet, but I can't wait. Uh, Richard Rhodes, um, who uh, also, like me, wrote a biography of John James Audubon uh, and is a friend. Uh, he has written a biography that I believe will be out later this year of E.O. Wilson. The oh, biologist. yeah. And he's a man who comes up always. And, and given your interest in biology. Yeah. Yeah. I think. Great. Yeah. It should be fantastic. Well, I'm going to tap you, Bill, for all those three. Real honor <laughs> to have you on the show again. Congratulations uh, 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 on Mad at the World. Are you working on anything new? What's your new book going to be about? I, I am, um, I'm retired, which means probably in about a year, I'll think about what the new book is going to be.
Well, as soon as as soon as you know what it is and it's written, I want you back on the show. William um, Souder, author of Mad at the World, wonderful book. Real honor to have you on the show. Keep well, uh, Bill. Thank keep you. writing. Keep keep doing biography. We need guys like you. They're essential. Thank you so much. Oh, thanks, Andrew. It was a real pleasure. I, I appreciate you having me on.